We're going to be in the book of Daniel tonight, a continuous study that, that we've begun. Uh, I want to remind you that the name of this series is Daniel History, Ancient and Future. We're in chapter 5 tonight, and uh, the way the book of Daniel is divided up, the first six chapters, the first half of the book, is ancient history. It's events that take place. I'm a little bit strong. Bring me down. It's events that take place um, in Babylon uh, during the time of the exile of the nation of Judah. The last half of the book, I've called it, uh, I've called it history future, because it's presented as uh, as a a completed act. It's written as as completed history, and yet. Daniel is talking about last days, end times. Daniel, the last six chapters of Daniel, and the last nine chapters of Ezekiel, as well as a few chapters in Zechariah, really constitute uh, sort of the Old Testament version of the book of Revelation. And so it'll be interesting as we kind of wrap up this look back into Babylon um, you're going to notice between chapter 6 and 7 a real turn as we flash forward uh, to the very last days of human history. History, ancient, and future. We're still in Babylon, though. Chapter 5. I was reading, um, I was reading a book. I have, I have all kinds of really trivial things stuff in my office, and I was reading a book of, of last words of famous people, basically is what it is, I don't remember the title, but there was a story in the book that, that said just before the death of actor W.C. Fields, surely nobody here is old enough to actually remember W.C. Fields, but a friend visited him in his hospital room and was surprised to find him thumbing through a Bible. He was never a man known for any kind of faith or concern of, of, of those kinds of things, but here in the hospital, thumbing through a Bible, his friend asked him what he was doing with the Bible. And Fields replied, I'm looking for a loophole. As we come to chapter 5, let me just remind you of where we were in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the chapter where Nebuchadnezzar, who has always been sort of loosely a, a fond of Daniel's God, mostly because of the things that he enabled Daniel to be able to do that helped the king, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But when we get to chapter 4, we have this, this bizarre episode where Nebuchadnezzar, so full of himself, stands and congratulates himself on how wonderful the empire of Babylon is that he has, has assembled by his own greatness. And God basically strikes him down. His, his mind snaps, and for seven years he becomes animal-like, ox-like even. 
and is locked somewhere in a field where he is given grass to eat like, uh, like a bovine. It's when he comes to himself and immediately looks up and acknowledges that even the most powerful king of the ancient world stands accountable before the true king. He's not only granted his sanity back, but he's also then given the empire back and his crown and his throne and all the majesty that, 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 that was assigned to him. But now he doesn't just speak of, of Daniel's God in terms of, uh, that in the same terms that he would have used for the pagan gods of Babylon. He speaks about Daniel's God in very biblical descriptions. It's a real faith here at, in the last years of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, when we get to chapter 5, we have a new king. His name is Belshazzar, and he is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, um, it appears that about 30 years have passed between the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. You say, well, that's an oddly precise number to, to assign to this. Well, it's because of what happens in this chapter this is one of those remarkable places in the Bible where, where the, the biblical account can be precisely measured because we have not extra biblical sources that talk about these same events. So we know the date of Daniel chapter 5 down to the day. It was October the 12th of 539 B.C. Now, I'll explain how we know that, um, but let's, let's look at this chapter. Um, Belshazzar is radically different um, from his grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar. And you say, well, how did it go from Nebuchadnezzar to his grandson? Well, there were, there were, there were several kings, actually, in Nebuchadnezzar's line during that 30-year period. Um, by the time we get to this chapter, Belshazzar is is king, he's actually the son of Nabonidus, who was one of Nebuchadnezzar's sons. Nabonidus and Belshazzar apparently, um, until just a few weeks before we get to chapter 5, they were co-regents. That is that uh, Nabonidus actually, for religious reasons of whatever the, the pagan gods that he worshipped, he refused to live in the capital city. So Belshazzar was co-regent of the empire of Babylon, living in the capital city of Babylon, while Nabonidus lived several hundred miles away and sort of ruled the other side of the empire. But they've come back together for a time because they are now at war with an up-and-coming superpower called the Medes and the Persians. Nebuchadnezzar is long gone, and really the vice grip of his world that he held is, uh, is being loosened. Babylon is in significant decline, and the Persians are on the rise. 
the battles between Persia and Babylon are reaching their climax, and after a significant defeat, Nabonidus abandons the capital city and leaves. And because he was primarily held responsible for the defeat, Belshazzar, who has been co-regent, co-ruler, history tells us Belshazzar seems to have announced that he was going to be sole ruler. Now here's the problem. I'm setting the historical stage before we read this chapter. Here's the problem. In in order to... um, inspire confidence. Remember, Babylon is in decline. Not only have they lost the last major confrontation with the Persians, but at the night that we're, that we're going to look at in this chapter, uh, the Persian army has now marched to the city of Babylon, and they are literally camped outside the walls. On that night, with the enemy just on the other side of the city walls, either out of a false confidence that the city was somehow impregnable and they were safe, probably more likely Belshazzar trying to inspire confidence in his people that despite all the failures of his father, he was up to the moment. He has apparently... um, not an inauguration, a coronation. He has a coronation. He invites a thousand nobles. And in this, with the enemy at the gates, they have a drunken orgy to celebrate this new king. Now that's one of the ways that we can so precisely time this because here's the spoiler alert. By the time we get to the end of chapter 5, Babylon will fall. This impregnable city of Babylon, this city that... And and here's the thing. Um, Belshazzar knew that the city walls of Babylon, they were double walls. In fact, they they were so solid and so wide that chariots could drive along the top of the walls. The Euphrates River ran through the city, and historians tell us that knowing that an assault was coming, uh, they had stockpiled food and supplies, literally enough supplies to hold out in a siege setting, potentially for years. He had all the supplies, maybe eight or ten years worth of supplies, he had what he thought were impregnable walls. He had a a, a river running through the city with with water supply. I mean, he was under the illusion, much like his grandfather before the episode when he lost his mind, Belshazzar thought he was the greatest king that had ever breathed air on the earth. Now, the reason we can date this so precisely is because um, there are two uh, Greek historians, Herodotus and Xenophon, who both record in their histories that there was a banquet of some substantial size that was held in Babylon on the very night when the city would fall 
to a guerrilla force of Persians who would divert the river Euphrates and like gophers dig their way in the soft riverbed under the walls of the city and with all of the nobles and all of the royalty and all of the leadership of the city uh, soused from this drunken orgy, uh, Babylon Falls. But we know this is, this is one of those uh, archaeological and historical ways that we, uh, that we verify the, credibility, the historical credibility of the biblical text because what's told here very much from a spiritual perspective, we know from non-biblical sources Historically, we know precisely the date when all of these things happened, and their accounts, as far as the actual events, correlate exactly with what we find in Daniel chapter 5. Now, having said all that, let's look at what it means spiritually. I started on your outline, you see, uh, I've, I've called this the verdict exhibited. Daniel chapter 5, the first 16 verses. Remember, 30 years have passed since, since, uh, since chapter 4. Now, we, we're, we're left with a gap here, but we know that Daniel is probably, at this point, um, he's probably, if not retired, he's probably on his way out of public service. He came as a young man. Um, the 70 years of exile are really coming to a close. They're sort of just around the, the corner. He's probably been there at this point about 60 years in Babylon. Uh, if he was 15 to 20 when he came, he's probably now somewhere between 75 and 80. He's not in the events initially, but he makes an appearance because every time something bad happens to a king in Babylon, it, it eventually makes its way back to Daniel. So here we are now, uh, an, an, an old man, retired probably from public service. Here's the story. Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave orders to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines could drink out of them. Then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God which was in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank out of them. They drank the wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. All right, let's just stop right there. Uh, I've called this the challenge. Here's what's happening. You might say, well, that's random. I mean, uh, the conquest of Judah was probably 60 years ago. Why all of a sudden does he decide to bring all the gold vessels that have been taken from the temple in Jerusalem that was destroyed, and now he brings them out to be a part of this celebration? Well, here's what, here's what makes sense of this, of this passage. 
Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, had come to a faith in the one true God, but it was late enough in his life that clearly it was not handed down within his own family. By the time we have Belshazzar, the grandson, uh, the pagan gods of Babylon are once again in the ascendancy, and Belshazzar is nothing if not all about the empire. Here we have the, the Persians camped outside the city, and Belshazzar probably putting himself forward as the savior of the empire. Nabonidus has been run off. He's gone wherever he goes. He's sort of disappeared into the pages of history. And Belshazzar is, is presenting himself as the solution. As a part of this coronation of his coming to sole rule of the kingdom, it probably wasn't just the, the, the stolen remnants of the nation of Judah. Probably through the course of this evening, as a symbolic reminder of the superiority of Babylon over every other nation on earth, they probably brought all of these kinds of captured doodads from all the captured nations. They dragged them out of the treasury. They brought them out of the museum. They brought them all. And, and it's very specific. The king, the, the nobility, the officials, but even his wives and his concubines, they drank wine from all of these vessels. It would have been a not-so-subtle symbolism that, that these pieces that were offered to all of these conquered gods are nothing more than red solo cups to Babylon. Well, I don't know all the nations that Babylon conquered. History can, can give us that list. They probably worked through a series of nations they crossed the line when they brought these vessels out of the treasury because unlike the other conquered nations these vessels from this temple actually belonged to the true God not just the God of Daniel not just the God of Ezekiel the God of Nebuchadnezzar but he trots them out probably in a series with other nations and they drink them. This is the challenge. Um, this unseemly and drunken orgy, despite the defeat of Nabonidus, um, it, may have, it may have been partially an act of defiance to the Persians outside the gates, thinking, uh, telling them that, they weren't, that the Babylonians weren't afraid, the city was, was uh, uh, impregnable. Uh, it may have been, as I've said, a celebration of his coronation as the king, but we know this, while history will describe it as a coronation ceremony, as a challenge to the Medes and the Persians, biblically speaking, we know this, it was an act of blasphemy against the God of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, it was an act of royal defiance and arrogance. It was an in-your-face challenge to the Most High God. All right, here's the confrontation. Verse 5, suddenly 
the fingers of a human hand emerged and began writing opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the back of the hand that did the writing. Then the king's face became pale and his thoughts alarmed him and his hip joints loosened and his knees began knocking together. Actually, I love, I love the Hebrew of those two verses. Let me, let me explain it to you. It says suddenly, and the word is a word that means unexpectedly. It was at the height of blasphemy. It was at the pinnacle of the drunkenness and the immorality that all of a sudden a visible human appearing hand shows itself and begins to write on the wall with a finger. Everybody in the room sobered instantly. Listen, this was not a vision. It was a miraculous presentation of truth. Everything we've seen so far in the book of Daniel, God seems to always confront the Babylonian rulers in their dreams, dreams that required interpretation. This was not a dream. It was not a vision. It was a miraculous appearance and a kind of absolute fear gripped the king because the most high God had just crashed the party. If Belshazzar thought that the Medes and the Persians outside the gates were his problem, what he was beginning to find out was his problem was someone entirely different. The way this is written, this, this translation is, is very accurate. It says the king's face became pale. I mean, he, all the blood drained from his face as he instantly sobered up. But let me explain this other part. And his hip joints loosened and his knees began knocking together. In the ancient world, the, the pelvis area was, was regularly understood as the seat of emotions. In our culture, we say, oh, I just felt it in my heart. But in the ancient world, emotions were, were assigned to the pelvis area. So this idea, if you can just picture it in your imagination, the idea here is as the blood drains from his face, as he sobers up by what he's seeing, there is a trembling, a, a, a tremor in his body so severe that his knees are knocking together as he just is uh, scared witless. And the phrase would have been he, as he was trembling like a, like a man with a, with a muscular disease, the phrase would have been, it was like his hips came out of joint. He was trembling so severely. It was like nothing was even connected. That's the image that we have here. This is a man claiming to be the greatest king on earth. And here in this confrontation, God shows up with a hand that writes a message on the wall. And this king is scared speechless. Verse 7, confusion. The king called aloud to bring in the sorcerers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners. 
The king began speaking and said to the wise men of Babylon. Now this is what all the kings of the ancient world did. Anytime they needed to have some insight into something they didn't understand, you trot these guys in. Who knows where they are? Who knows what they do when when the king doesn't summon them? But when he does summon them, they're supposed to have answers. Except not one time in the book of Daniel have these fools done one thing to answer any questions. They're worthless. And here they're going to prove that again. It says, it says uh, he said to the wise men of Babylon, anyone who can read this inscription and explain its interpretation to me shall be clothed with purple and have a necklace of gold around his neck and have authority as third ruler in the kingdom. Now, again, there's a little historical note there. Uh, Nabonidus has abandoned the city. He's run away, but he's not dead. History tells us that he escaped. So I think that's what this reference is. The, he, he's saying, whoever can answer this problem, whoever can solve this problem and give me an interpretation of these words, uh, I'll make him third ruler. There's Belshazzar, there's Nabonidus, you'll be next. That's the promise. Verse 8, then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Oh, and by the way, this is not Hebrew, it's Aramaic, which is probably why nobody had any idea what, what, what the words were. Okay, there's nobody in the court uh, that, has, that has that skill. Uh, we'll see the words when we get there. Uh, all of the king's wise men came in, they couldn't read the inscription or make known its interpretation to the king. Verse 9. Then Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, his face grew even more pale, and his nobles were perplexed. The queen entered the banquet hall. Okay, historical note. This is not his wife. This is probably his mother or maybe even his grandmother. You'll see why in just a minute. The queen entered the banquet hall because of the words of the king and his nobles. The queen began to speak and said, O king, live forever. Do not let your thoughts alarm you or your face be pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, illumination, insight, and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father in, in the sense of, you know, your forefather, King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, appointed him chief of the soothsayer priests, sorcerers, Chaldeans, and diviners. This was because an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and insight, interpretation of dreams, explanation of riddles, and solving of difficult problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Let Daniel now be summoned, and he will declare the interpretation. Now, it's interesting. Um, we know, we know this is not, this queen is not Belshazzar's wife. Uh, his wives and his concubines have already been mentioned as being a part of this party. This is a queen, probably a queen mother, um, who comes in when she uh, catches wind of the commotion. But she's old enough to remember that when we've had situations like this before, there's this guy. Now, what's fascinating to me, as just a side note, is 
she mentions his Babylonian name that was assigned to him, Belteshazzar, but except to mention that name, she calls him by the name Daniel. That tells me something because Belteshazzar, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were Babylonian names assigned to these Hebrew uh, young men who were drafted into the king's service. They were given Babylonian names because the goal was to assimilate the people of Judah. And part of that was you take their best and their brightest and you make them Babylonian and the people will follow their own leadership as this happens. Well, I wonder, the Bible doesn't say this, but I wonder if after Nebuchadnezzar comes to a proper understanding of Daniel's God, if Daniel is not allowed to revert to the name Daniel and goes by that for the rest of his life because Nebuchadnezzar Instead of bringing Daniel into the Babylonian sphere, Nebuchadnezzar now, after his confrontation with the Most High God, he enters into Daniel's sphere. Now the queen, who, which queen exactly, we don't know, but she's old enough to remember all of this. So she says, listen, just summon Daniel. Every time we have a problem, this is your guy. So sure enough, verse 13 Then Daniel was brought in before the king. See, he wasn't there. He's not a part of this. He's probably out of public life. But they went and found him, and they brought him in. The king began speaking and said to Daniel, Are you that Daniel who is one of the exiles from Judah, whom my father the king brought from Judah? Now I have heard about you, that a spirit of the gods is in you, and that illumination, insight, and extraordinary wisdom have been found in you. Now it's interesting, both the queen and Belshazzar, when they speak to Daniel of spiritual things, they sound like the early Nebuchadnezzar. Remember? I understand you have the spirit of the gods. They're using Babylonian pagan language because they're trying to describe what they know of Daniel in terms that they can understand. It wasn't until after Nebuchadnezzar had his confrontation and came to know the true God that he began to speak of the true God in Hebrew terms and not Babylonian terms. But now with this king, we're back to describing Daniel uh, in the same way that that the early Nebuchadnezzar had described him. Uh, Verse 15, Just now the wise men and the sorcerers were brought in before me to read this inscription and make its interpretation known to me, but they could not declare the interpretation of the message. But I personally have heard about you, that you are able to give interpretations and solve difficult problems. Now if you are able to read the inscription and make its interpretation known to me, you will be clothed with purple and wear a necklace of gold around your neck, and you will have authority as the third ruler of the kingdom. This king starts the, the evening, um, starts this episode by screaming for his wise men and his advisors. He gives these lavish promises of the rewards that will come. The queen mother comes out. She brings Daniel into the conversation. Daniel is summoned, this probably octogenarian old man. 
And with every piece of flattery and bribery, they come to him and say, can you solve this confusion that we have? Hmm. Well, here's the verdict explained. Now, before I read these verses, let me remind you of where we've been. The first time Nebuchadnezzar summons Daniel, he's going to kill all of his advisors because they, nobody can interpret this dream that he's had. And Daniel says, uh, don't kill everybody. I can do this. I can tell you the, the meaning of the dream. By the same token, the second time when Daniel comes in to describe the second dream, the one that led to the seven years of insanity, um, Daniel, by that point, has a real fondness for the old man. I mean, remember he says, I, I wish the message of this dream was about your enemies. But it's not. It's about you. And then very kindly and gently, but without hesitation, he says, you have not honored the true God. You have acted as though you were God. And that is not going to be allowed. Daniel, each time that he meets with Nebuchadnezzar, they had a real, they had a, if not a friendship, they had a, a, a mutual respect. But Daniel's past that. Nebuchadnezzar's long gone, and this, this pup, he is, he, 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 can't, he, can't, he can't hold Nebuchadnezzar's hat, and yet he thinks he's all that. Listen to the contrast between the way Daniel spoke to Nebuchadnezzar and the way that he now speaks to Belshazzar. In verse 17, we're going to, first of all, we're going to see his integrity displayed. Here's all these promises of all this stuff, and I'm going to make you a ruler, and I'm going to give you all this wealth. Verse 17, then Daniel replied and said before the king, keep your gifts for yourself or give your rewards to someone else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and make the interpretation known to him. I love this verse. Daniel probably refused the gifts partly because he was old and didn't need them. But I think, uh, I don't think there was a pridefulness or even a rudeness here. I think he wanted to make sure that there was no misconception that the services of the one true God could be bought and sold I think he wanted to avoid being obligated to this king. Before he interpreted the writing, Daniel is going to sternly um, reprimand him. He's going to mention the consequences of his pride. He's going to condemn his blasphemy and his deliberate defiance. This indictment section is powerful. He starts by saying, Keep your prizes and your, your, your paltry re rewards. Uh, I don't need it. I don't want it. Give them to somebody else if you have to. I don't want it. Verse 18. Listen to this tone. O king, the most high God granted sovereignty, greatness, honor, and majesty to Nebuchadnezzar your father. 
Now because of the greatness which he granted him, all the peoples, nations, and populations of all languages trembled and feared in his presence. Whomever he wished, he killed, and whomever he wished, he spared alive. Whomever he wished, he elevated, and whomever he wished, he humbled. But when his heart was arrogant and his spirit became so overbearing that he behaved presumptuously, he was deposed from his royal throne and his dignity was taken away from him. He was also driven away from mankind and his heart was made like that of animals and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was given grass to eat like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he recognized that the Most High God is ruler over the realm of mankind and that he sets over it whomever he wishes. He's just reviewing history that even if he was a young man, Belshazzar must have been witness to these episodes. Verse 22. Yet you, yet you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all this. But you have risen up against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines have been drinking wine out of them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see, nor hear, nor understand. But the God in whose hand are your life, breath, and all your ways, you have not glorified. Then the hand was sent from him, and this inscription was written out. Man. He reviews the story of Nebuchadnezzar. And this is powerful. But you, you who know all these things, you've seen all these things. You remember when these things took place, but you didn't learn from them. And you have been full of yourself. You have blasphemed. Not only have you been, have you been arrogant, not only have you been prideful, but you spit in the face of the most. Notice Daniel keeps using that, that name. There are many names of God in the Old Testament. There are all kinds of names of God. We know Yahweh is the personal name of God. That, that was the revelation given to Moses of the burning bush. We know uh, we, the God who is there, the God who heals, uh, Jehovah Rapha. I mean, there, there are, there's, there's almost a, a, a limitless list of names because no single name captures everything that we can know about God. We have to come at it like a diamond that's studied in its facets from different directions to try and get a full picture of its, uh, of its grandeur. There are lots of names uh, for God in the Old Testament, but Daniel, Daniel's always talking to kings. And so it's no accident that the name of God that he gravitates toward is the Most High God. It's a name in Hebrew that means precisely that. It's the name of sovereignty. It's the name of unchallenged authority. It's the name of the one who not just spoke creation into existence, but rules creation as the most high God. He keeps coming back to that name. And he says, here, you knew all of this. You, 
You saw it. You've heard the stories. But you've chose to worship gods of wood and, and stone and gold and silver. You do know they don't see. You do know that they don't hear. You do know that they don't speak. There's nothing here to offer you. Why do they, why do, why do, why do pagans in every era of human history, why, why do we gravitate toward idolatry? I mean, even in our generation, I've been to many parts of the world that still, still worship idols. Uh, whether it's Hindus and their little statues that they have in their in their homes where they light incense, or 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 other places that that have totem poles or or or, or whatever, why do we gravitate towards such gods? Because they're always in our image. The essence of human rebellion from the garden is I know best. God does what I want him to do. So it's most convenient if you have a God and you can assign to him any message that you want. But the most high God, he doesn't jump through hoops on command. Because he's an actual God. Well, the hand has been sent and the inscription has been written out. In verse 25, we have the interpretation. Verse 25 through 28. Mene, mene, tekel, uparsin. You don't know Aramaic, so you don't know if I said that right or not. This is the interpretation of the message. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. Perez, that's a, 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 another form of uparsin. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, here's what's interesting. Um, these words... This is the, the trans, this is the interpretation. What the words literally mean, mene means numbered or counted or measured. The interpretation, God has numbered your kingdom and put an end to it. In other words, he's counted the years assigned to you and the number has come to a close. Tekel, the word literally means weighed. He interprets it to say you have been weighed on the scales and found deficient. That's an easy enough image to understand. The, the prophecy here is your time is up because God's allotted time to your kingdom is finished. Your kingdom has been evaluated by the one who has a flawless judgment and it has been found, found to be wanting. And then Perez or Persin or Huparsin, various versions of the same word, the word means divided, and his interpretation is your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now, it's, it's fascinating because that word especially, divided, 
The Medes and the Persians, the reason that we call it that way is because they really were two separate kingdoms that had joined forces in an alliance to take on Babylon. And they, once having defeated Babylon, they, they maintained both their distinctiveness but also their alliance. And so uh, we usually talk about the Persians because they were kind of the dominant um, they were the dominant element by sheer numbers, but the Medes seem to have been the ones that had the most influence in establishing the way the kingdom would be carried out. We'll see that in, in future chapters, okay? I'll, I'll talk about that when we get there. But we often refer to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. It's interesting, this prophecy is so precise. He says, the number that has been assigned to this kingdom is finished. It's complete. There are no more years. Your time is up. You've been evaluated. You've been put in a scale and weighed, and you are deficient. The scale uh, has tipped in the wrong direction for you. And then the word divided, that would be a very odd word to include in this kind of prophecy except that we know looking back in a sense the Babylonian empire was split between the Medes and the Persians listen folks prophecy this is this is prophecy continually gives us confidence in the uh, divine authorship and inspiration of scripture You've been numbered, you've been weighed, you've been divided. It was an announcement of divine evaluation of Belshazzar's rule and a declaration of imminent judgment. His life and his reign would very quickly be ending. And sure enough, here we are. The verdict executed, verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave orders, and they clothed Daniel with purple and put a necklace of gold around his neck and issued a proclamation concerning him that he now had authority as the third ruler in the kingdom. All right, let's just stop right there. I thought he didn't want all any of this. Well, he didn't, but here's the thing. This is why I suggested he probably turned it down when it was offered to him because he didn't want to be in obligation to this king. But by the time he gets to the end of the interpretation, that obligation's only going to last like 45 minutes. So what's the point? They came, they put the robe on him, they issued the declaration. You say, well, well why, would, why would Belshazzar, with this kind of ugly message and this rebuke from an old man, that he doesn't have respect for, why would he still even honor him with all of these? Well, here's the thing. This is, this is, I mean, let's think through this. Belshazzar is not humbled by the judgment. He receives it, and apparently what he wanted was he wanted the explanation. But he's not afraid of a judgment by Daniel's God. So 
He now has his answer. He's going to deal with it. He, he goes ahead and keeps his word and he grants to Daniel all of the things that he promised. You see, there wouldn't have been time for purple robes and, and, you know, and, and all the rewards if he had been on his face repenting before Almighty God. But he wasn't. And so, here's how the chapter ends. Verse 30. That same night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. So Darius the Mede received the kingdom at about the age of 62. Death. This is easy to date because it is one of ancient history's most significant events. It was the night that the Babylonian Empire fell and the Medo-Persian Empire began. The city fell. Belshazzar was executed that very night as the Medes executed what I've called a gopher attack after they diverted the Euphrates and in the soft riverbed soil, they tunneled their way into the city. Life, what's the message here? I mean, this would be a fun passage to teach, even if it was just an interesting story from history. But there, there are no stories, even interesting ones from history, that are included in God's Word unless there's a lesson to be learned. What is the lesson of this chapter? It's that a life lived not only independent of God, but in defiance of God, will eventually find its way into a confrontation with God. And a moment of personal decision, a crisis moment, will present itself. And out of that crisis moment, there will either be the extension of grace or a verdict of wrath. Nebuchadnezzar had this moment. But for him, he looked up and he acknowledged the Most High God. I believe Nebuchadnezzar received grace. Belshazzar, in the same moment of confrontation, the same crisis of decision, he clearly said, I got this. I'll do it my way. And that very night, his, his life was forfeit and the most powerful superpower of that day was no more. October the 12th, 539 B.C., it's historically accurate, but it's spiritually stunning. Because the lesson for us in 2023 is this. I don't care if Vladimir Putin is the president of Russia. I don't care if Joe Biden is the president of the United States. I don't care 
who's the Secretary General of the United Nations. I don't care who's the Prime Minister of Canada. I don't care any other nation, any other head of state, because at the end of the day, God raises up nations for his purposes and he throws them down when he's finished. And we need to be reminded that Daniel 5 is not just an interesting historical episode. It is a reminder that we, we use different names. We call God Father. We have New Testament names. We call him Lord. Sometimes we, we say Master. But in your prayers, every now and again, particularly when you're praying about our culture and the craziness of our generation and our political leaders, let me remind you to address your prayers to the Most High God because we need to be reminded that none of these fools call the shots. There is one God and He raises up nations and he throws them down and the story will end precisely as he has determined already. That, (laughs) that ought to get us through a lot of troubles. The Most High God. Maybe in this whole episode, the use of that name of God is the primary takeaway for you and me in 2023. Father, we come before you and we acknowledge in fact that you are the most high God. And for all of our concern about the things that are happening in our world, we see what appears to be evil men running by all appearances without accountability, without anybody to to call them to justice. And yet, Father, we know, we know unshakably deep down in our souls, we know that everyone will answer to you. It is appointed unto a man to die once and then the judgment. And Father, we simply humble ourselves and acknowledge that our lives are in your hands Our future belongs to you and your plans. Help us to be faithful, bold, courageous. Help us to live in a way like Daniel, unmoved by the offers of of material wealth from the world around us. Let us live with integrity as men and women of faith, absolutely resting in the confidence that your reign of sovereignty in the universe is ultimately unchallenged. Be most high God to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.